0: Many shed tears in Caracas, but also some fears today, Wednesday, March 6. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Thousands of emotional mourners march for Chávez on the streets of Caracas. We'll hear from both supporters and critics of the late Venezuelan president. This Venezuelan academic thinks Chávez's harsh anti-U.S. rhetoric caused many Americans to overlook his achievements.
1: The reality is that there's been fundamental changes in Venezuela, fundamental changes in the political culture, in the political landscape, and that change has also been seen throughout Latin America.
0: And later, some immigrants here on H-1B skilled worker visas say they fear deportation when they're between contracts.
2: It's like you have a sword on your neck and you have to find a job.
3: Rise, The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. And today, this is Caracas, Venezuela. Supporters of Hugo Chavez mourning and crying in the streets of the Venezuelan capital, it was a massive outpouring of grief. Tens of thousands of people marched alongside the casket containing the body of the late Venezuelan president as it was driven from the hospital where he died yesterday to the military academy in Caracas. But it wasn't just tears from the Chavistas. There were chants, too, defiantly proclaiming that their commandante lives on. We're going to hear a range of Venezuelan voices today to try and gauge this very particular moment for the divided nation that Chavez leaves behind, a nation that is now gearing up for a presidential election to elect a successor in just a month's time. We're going to start with some of those people on the streets of Caracas. As you'll hear, not all of them Chavistas.
1: Men, like our commander Chavez, leave an irreparable loss. He was a heroic man who fought for Venezuela, especially for us, the poor.
4: My heart is broken. Chavez took a piece of my heart.
5: I think the best future for Venezuela is without Chávez, but he does leave a legacy. I don't share many of his ideas,
3: but he does leave
5: some positive things for the country. The voices of just three
0: of the thousands of Venezuelans mourning President Chavez today on the streets of Caracas. Augusto Montiel was also part of that crowd. He's a member of Venezuela's National Assembly and of the ruling United Socialist Party. Montiel was out marching when we spoke with him earlier over a noisy cell phone line. He said the atmosphere in Caracas today was emotional. Emotions
6: here are feelings of pain, of sorrow, of reflection of gratitude to a great man, a great Democrat, a great inspirer of people, a great constructor of uh, democracies, of constitutions. People are embracing one to another, women, children, men. This is... Unfortunately, a historic moment, and of course, fortunately for the world, the revolution will continue in the hearts of all these people, men, women, and all.
0: How many people are around you there at this event where everybody's mourning Chavez
6: today? Well, this is not just a morning march. This is a march of dignity, of emotions, thousands uh, around the streets people all around the main avenues. And reports say that around the military academy, thousands have concentrated, waiting for the leader, and uh, millions and millions on the streets.
0: The big legacy of Chavez, of course, was Chavismo. Can it survive without him?
6: Well, people here... Within the Socialist Party and outside the Socialist Party are all aligned to see the future of the revolution in the hands of all those who are with Chavez. Uh, Nicolás Maduro, the vice president, is uh, in charge now of the presidency, and we all support Nicolás Maduro to continue the work of President Chavez.
0: Augusto Montiel, a member of Venezuela's ruling United Socialist Party, they speaking with us from the streets of Caracas earlier today. As you heard there, he's among those pledging his support to interim leader Nicolás Maduro and vowing to continue the work of Hugo Chávez. On the other hand, there are Venezuelans who are hoping for a
7: change from the way Chávez governed. He proceeded in the 14 years that he was in power to undermine democracy using the tools of democracy. Moises
0: Naim is a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was Venezuela's minister of trade and industry in the early 1990s. He says Venezuelans will live with the changes Chavez set in motion for many years to come.
7: Venezuela is today a highly polarized country with a very significant uh, portion of the population in mourning. And, you know, Chavez was a beloved leader and uh, many feel that uh, he was uh, almost like a father figure to them. And the other half of the country just uh, is uh, strongly, strongly uh, adversarial and feels that he undermined many of the good things that the country had. One of the big
0: legacies that everybody's talking about is this whole notion of Chavismo. But without Hugo Chavez, can Chavismo survive? I mean, what what for you is Chavismo?
7: Chavismo depended on an economic model that was clearly unsustainable, that is already showing strains, that will make and force whoever is in charge to make very fundamental economic reforms that will uh, be very painful to the Venezuelan people, and including, of course, Chavez supporters. Chavismo was using huge revenues, both from oil revenues, but also from indebting the country. The country's debt now uh, has soared. Uh, and that money was essentially used to fuel consumption. Uh, there very little of the of the money was uh, for investment, and they had uh, very very strong expansive uh, policies to boost demand. While at the same time they had the breaks in creating supplies, and that imbalance between a lot of uh, demand and all kinds of uh, limits on the supply created the highest inflation in uh, Latin America. You're saying then
0: that Chavez ruined the economy? I mean, it's the big challenge of whoever succeeds him to rebuild that economy?
7: Yes, Chávez created an economic model that was unsustainable, that created that was opaque, that was uh, very highly prone to corruption, that was highly centralized, that was uh, f- rife with cronyism. And there is, of course, uh, the legacy of uh, a talk about dignity. This is a country where if you can't work for the government, uh, you will not find a lot of job opportunities. And in order to work for the government, you have to display great uh, public uh, uh, statements uh, uh, and gestures of support, loyalty, even affection for the president and his government. So it's a highly personalistic, and there's a personality cult, uh, and only devotees of the president will find jobs and subsidies and access to the handouts given by the government.
0: All right, Moises, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Moises Naim, a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We're joined now by Miguel Tinker Salas. He's a professor of Latin American history at Pomona College. His latest book is The Enduring Legacy oil culture and citizenship in Venezuela. Any thoughts on those final words from Oasis Naim, Miguel?
1: I think there's a lot of vitriol there, and I think that it really doesn't capture what's happening in Venezuela. The reality in Venezuela is quite different from what you would normally see in the traditional media. Uh, the reality is that there's a president who has actually garnered support repeatedly in democratic elections that have been observed internationally, and I think that that, that, that tends to be obscured by the fact that, yes, there was a, a harsh rhetoric and a sharp rhetoric towards the US, but the reality is that there's been fundamental changes in Venezuela, fundamental changes in the political culture, in the political landscape, and that change has also been seen throughout Latin America. One need only look and see who is president uh, in most of the countries of South America to see that what began with Hugo Chavez in 1998 has in fact been picked up and spread throughout Latin America.
0: Once you pull Chavez with all his charisma, all his personality out of the equation, do you have a political force left?
1: I think you do. I think the example of that is very clear in the 2012 governor elections in which Chavez did not campaign and in which the the government-supported party, the PSUV, won 20 of 23 elections. But I think that beyond the individual leaders, I think the most important thing is here is the social empowerment that has happened among Venezuelans that had been historically excluded from the political process. And sometimes that gets lost in the picture because this is not just about Chavez. This is about the fact that there is a population that has now claimed rights, now claimed position, and is not going to retreat to the margins. They are going to be a central figure in whatever happens in Venezuela. And at that level, there is no going back. The Venezuela of 2013 is not the Venezuela of 1998.
0: Miguel Tinker Salas, the author of The Enduring Legacy, Oil Culture and Citizenship in Venezuela, and a professor of Latin American history at Pomona College in California. We also reached out here in Boston for some local reaction to the news from Venezuela, just five minutes from the World Studios is a Venezuelan restaurant called La Casa de Pedro. The owner is Pedro Alacon from Caracas. He serves up spicy and heavenly empanadas, fruit smoothies, and strong opinions.
8: Two empanadas, two arepas. One arepa with the cheese and one arepa with
0: a beef and cheese. After ordering me a small feast, He led me through the kitchen to his office. There, the TV was on, tuned to a Spanish-language news channel, a live report from those crowded streets of Caracas. Some people really love Chavez. My father
8: voted for Chavez 14 years ago. Now you're talking to my father about Chavez, he just got
0: a heart attack. I don't want to talk about him. So, Pedro, tell me, how did you learn of the news of uh, the death of Hugo Chavez yesterday? My father called me from Colombia. You're Venezuelan, but your
8: father lives in Colombia. My father from Colombia. I moved them from Venezuela to Colombia because it was too dangerous for him. He's been robbed many times. It's, n- it's no life, in there. everything is completely expensive. I don't know how the people in Venezuela live with this type of salaries or the money. It's impossible.
0: How did you react when you heard from your uh, from your father?
8: I uh, I told my father, I said, "Are you sure?" Immediately, I got another call from my friend, and then he says, "Chávez died." You sure? You swear to me, promise to me that you really, what you're telling me is the truth. Yes, Pedro, I am. Why did you feel good that Chavez died? I don't feel good because he died. I feel good because he's not there anymore. I, I don't care if he, if he going in jail, he die, or something like that, but it's the progress
0: for the country you were born. But he created a whole class of people who support him, who support his ideas. I mean, is he really gone? The whole idea of Chavismo no, is still there. No, it's still,
8: and he's going to get worse. Let's put it this way. 14 years ago, you didn't have a Chavez. Today, you got people that were born with Chavez. They got 14 years old kids. They're the new generation. They don't know anything else.
0: Uh, Pedro, tell me what you are seeing for Venezuela's future right now. Very dark. Why?
8: Those people that are in power today, they are not going to release the power so easy. It's going to be very tough, very tough life for, the, for Venezuelan people. Why? If his Senor Maduro uh, win this election, if it's any election, which is I doubt it, they're going to continue to do the legend of Chávez. And Chávez didn't have anything good for Venezuela. Chávez didn't educate the people. Chávez didn't build it up. We are one of the richest countries in the world. And today, you're walking into any supermarket in Caracas, you see people fighting with the cars, to get the last gallon of milk. But Venezuela is a country that I really miss in Venezuela. I love the country, excellent people, beautiful people. Some of them have been manipulated by by the system. Pedro
0: Alacan, thanks so much for your thoughts on this.
8: My pleasure. Now we eat (laughs) some (laughs) empanadas.
0: And let me tell you, those were some amazing empanadas. You can see my pictures of Pedro Alarcon and his restaurant and check out a revealing blog post by the world's Jerry Haddon titled Dinner with the Folks Who Made Chavez Possible. That's all at theworld.org.
3: This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes. Application and information available at medtronic.com globalheroes. I'm
0: Marco Werman. This is The World. We've been hearing a lot about austerity in Europe, but austerity at the Vatican is another thing. Catholic Church officials say greater reserve is needed from the cardinals gathering in Rome to elect a new pope, and that silenced the American cardinals, the only ones who had been holding regular press conferences ahead of the conclave. You see, the cardinals are sworn to secrecy about the whole process, and once a conclave begins, probably next week, they'll be stuck behind closed doors until a new pope is chosen. Reporter Megan Williams was given a rare glimpse of what that will be like.
4: The bells of St. Peter's chime at 10 o'clock on a crisp, sunny morning. And a special Inside the Vatican tour of key locations of the coming conclave is about to get underway.
9: Okay, we'll
4: move on. Our guide is Benedict Steinschulte of the Pontifical Council for Social Communication. He leads us up a small incline to the Santa Marta complex. This is where 115 princes of the church, the cardinals who will elect the new pope, will stay for the duration of their conclave. The long, low, rather plain edifice was constructed in the 1990s under the pontificate of John Paul II. Steinschulte says it's a vast improvement over previous conclave accommodation.
9: Because I think in the conclave in 1978, in summertime, it was not so comfortable. For every 10 old men, only one bathroom.
4: Now each room comes equipped with its own bathroom.
9: It's not luxury, but it's uh, good material, I would say, no? Single bed? These are rooms for, for single persons,
4: what the rooms don't have, says Steinschulte, are radios and TVs. That's because Vatican law dictates that during the conclave, the cardinals have to remain cut off from the rest of the world. But the complex does have a large dining room and a cafe, so the cardinals can have an espresso or a cappuccino to stay alert for their deliberations. And, of course, there's a chapel. Steinschulte points to where he witnessed the cardinals heading to the last conclave.
9: I remember the cardinals walking to the 16th chapel. They took this way. Some walked on foot, the younger ones, the older ones in a small bus. They blocked the traffic here. For half an hour, they walked there, and then life was normal again. Yeah?
4: On foot, we take the same route the Cardinals soon will. A five-minute stroll past a Vatican gas pump, around a roundabout, and up a slight incline to the side entrance of the building where the Sistine Chapel is. The chapel itself is located up five flights of stairs. Since 1455, Cardinals have been climbing those stairs to vote under the splendid ceiling painted by Michelangelo. Today, they have the option of an elevator. A short minibus ride through the Vatican Gardens to the top of Vatican Hill takes us to the convent where the now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI will be living in retirement in a few months. The building is still being renovated; workers are busy hauling bricks and trimming hedges.
9: This is the convent for the Pope,
4: and it'll be just the Pope in there, or here, the,
9: the Pope and the, the four ladies, the housekeepers and the secretaries, and his personal secretary.
4: Not to mention Benedict XVI's beloved cats. The convent is attached to a medieval wall with giant cacti and flaming red bougainvillea growing up its side. It's a narrow brick, three-story structure with a trellised rooftop balcony offering the retired pontiff a view to die for. St. Peter's Cupola, the Sistine Chapel, and one other special building. Look, if you
9: go a little bit... On the left-hand side here, you see the roof of the Apostolic Palace.
4: The Apostolic Palace, where the next Pope will be living. In between, our guide points to the elaborate Vatican Gardens, where Benedict will soon spend time strolling, and quite possibly stopping to exchange greetings with his successor. The first time that two Popes meet in this setting, quietly making history under the bright Roman sunshine. For the world, I'm Megan Williams in Vatican City.
0: The Catholic Church is hugely popular in Poland, especially among older Poles, members of the generation that protested against communism in the 1980s and supported the Solidarity Movement. The leader of that movement, you'll remember, was union leader Lech Wałęsa, who also happened to be a staunch Catholic. He later served as president of Poland for five years, and he remains a popular icon of Polish democracy. But Wałęsa's reputation as a fighter for democratic values has taken a hit in the past few days, to bring us up to speed is the BBC's Warsaw correspondent, Adam Easton. Uh, what's Lech Wałęsa done, Adam, to imperil his reputation?
10: He's given a TV interview um, just in the last few days to one of the commercial uh, TV stations in which he was discussing the recent debate that's been go- happening in Poland about legalizing civil partnerships, not just for heterosexual couples, but also for homosexual couples. And he said that essentially there's been too much attention on this, specifically the homosexual uh, part of that debate. And he said w- the most controversial thing he said was that they shouldn't... They're a minority and they shouldn't be sitting on the front row. They, in fact, the... Uh, f- the uh, front Poland's row of only, uh, parliament, yeah. Yeah, Poland's got one openly gay MP and one transgender MP. And he says... He said that they should be sitting on the back row, the last seat of parliament. And then when he was asked, well, isn't that discrimination? He said, well, you know, not even the back row. They should be behind a wall outside parliament.
0: Right. And very interesting how uh, lawmakers in the Polish parliament responded.
10: It's been the first actual sitting of Parliament today since Mr. wawence's comments. And the openly gay uh, Polish MP and the transgender MP protested against uh, Mr. wawence's comments by actually taking their seats in the front row of Parliament, which are, is reserved in Poland for the party leaders, which they are not. And they usually sit somewhere in the middle. So
0: what was the reaction in Parliament? And did it, did it ripple out at all into the Polish public? It must have.
10: This has been debated every day on the news channels, the radio stations, the TV, and the newspapers since Mr. Wawensa made these comments. People have been talking about it all the time. And I think this, 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 this shows two things about Polish society. One is that Poles are acutely aware that whatever Mr. Wawensa says, he's, after all, uh, the most well known living Pole in the world. And if he says something like this, it's embarrassing for the image of Poland. And people are acutely aware of that. And what, that's one of the reasons why people have been discussing it so much. And the other thing is, I think it shows that um, there's a, a generational change in attitudes happening. It's happening very slowly. But I think it shows that a lot of younger Poles, uh, Poles who've had the opportunity to travel abroad since the, uh, freely since the country joined the European Union, And have experienced other cultures. And I think it shows that, you know, Mr. Vowence's comments to them is frankly unacceptable, and the media's picked up on that. So this is a slow change of attitudes. It will take a generation. I mean, the most recent opinion poll uh, about legalizing civil partnerships showed that 85% of those who responded said they were in favor of doing so for heterosexual couples. For homosexual couples, that number falls to 33%, with Mm -hmm. a majority against it. The BBC's Adam Easton in Warsaw. Thanks. Thanks, Marco. This
0: is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a Danish band goes way, way north for an unusual recording session.
11: We went there with a sort of a Zodiac boat, all of our equipment and these like big suits and and skiing glasses, and, you know, on a 3 hours crazy ride in the, in the ice-cold water.
0: <laughs> Plus one woman's online quest to find
3: her doppelganger. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes... Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman,
0: and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This could be the year that Congress finally does something about immigration reform. There's that plan put forth by a bipartisan group of senators. That's the one that includes a path to citizenship for some 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S., We hear a lot about that piece of the puzzle, but there's less discussion about other parts of the immigration debate, like whether to let American companies hire more highly skilled foreign workers. There's a push to issue more visas for that purpose, but it's controversial, as we hear in this report by Sam Harnett.
12: Kriti Bajaj thought she'd found her way. She studied biology, graduated from Stanford University, and then went home to India for a PhD. But after a year, she realized academia just wasn't for her.
4: There's too many unknowns. Nothing was working. Um, You know, I was in this, like, dark little cell in the middle of nowhere.
12: Bajad decided to ditch biology and restart her life as a computer programmer back in California. So now she's here in San Francisco on a tourist visa and enrolled in an intensive coding camp called App Academy. It teaches web development from scratch.
13: I log in, it sets some kind of cookie, then redirects me back to root.
12: It's only a nine-week course, so Bajad can finish it before her tourist visa runs out. Her plan? Build tech skills fast and then find a company that'll sponsor her for an H-1B. That's the visa for highly skilled foreign workers. But some say if she gets employed on an H-1B, she'll be robbing a job from an American.
11: If she's being hired for an H-1B visa based on nine weeks of programming work, are you kidding me? Then it's an abuse of the visa.
12: Normatlov teaches computer science at the University of California, Davis. He says companies use H-1B visas to replace older, U.S.-born programmers with younger, cheaper foreigners like Bajad. The abuse
11: is widespread. It's across the board.
12: H-1Bs debuted in 1990 as temporary three-year visas for high-skilled workers. The U.S. currently issues 85,000 H-1Bs a year, and companies snap those up quickly. To meet the high demand, Congress will soon debate whether to increase that quota to 300,000. Tech giants like Microsoft support the move, saying the U.S. has a shortage of skilled workers. Here's Bill Gates at a congressional hearing in 2009. My basic view is that the country should welcome as many of those people as we can get. It's a familiar argument, but truth is, most H-1B workers aren't found at high-profile companies like Google or Microsoft. Nearly half work at places like Infosys and Wipro. These are the huge IT workhorses that churn out the unglamorous connective tissue of modern business. The boilerplate coding, user support, and network maintenance. So why import labor for this lower-skilled work?
11: The central issue is wage and mobility.
12: Matloff argues that since employers sponsor H-1B visas, it's tricky for foreigners to negotiate higher salaries. And switching jobs means restarting any green card applications. Matloff says H-1B workers get handcuffed to employers. Artit Baraktari, a 32-year-old from Albania, has another phrase for it, indentured servitude. It's
2: crazy, but I'm getting used to it, so it's, it's nuts.
12: Baraktari works in Silicon Valley and specializes in software for mobile devices. Like many programmers here, he's hopped around, working at places like MobiTV, Yammer, and Amazon.
2: If you want to keep your skill set up to date, you have to sometimes move companies.
12: Baraktari hopes an employer will eventually value his skills enough to follow through with a green card application. He's been trying to get one for more than a decade now. At Amazon, he says it took them nearly two years just to start moving on the paperwork. And government approval could take years more. He says the grinding bureaucracy is like being back in Albania under communism.
2: To make things move forward, you have to settle your company that you're not going to work anymore. It becomes a weird, weird situation.
12: And it can be the same for salaries. A company's control over the visa process can keep some workers quiet about unequal pay. It happened to Baraktari at his first job, and it's happening now to Steve. I'm being paid less, which sucks for me, but it also sucks for American developers because I am a threat to them in some ways. I am cheaper. <laughs> OK, Steve doesn't want to use his real name, because if he's fired, he could be deported back to the UK. But he says his software firm in California Pays him 10 to 20% less than American co workers doing the exact same job. Maybe it's just naivety on my part, but I definitely feel like they lowballed me and I just like, oh, sure, okay. <laughs> Norm Matlov says the first reform for H 1Bs should be to make sure this doesn't happen. Foreign employees should receive competitive salaries, high enough to prove that companies really need them. The second is to end the handcuffing. Barakhtari agrees. Take the immigration process out of the hands of employers.
2: The H-1B holder should be able to do the green card petition himself and not the company, so you're not the slave of your company.
12: Right now, Barak Tari loses his visa sponsorship and risks deportation every time he's between jobs.
2: It's like you have a sword on your neck and you have to find a job.
12: Barak Tari has worked here legally for more than a decade. Now he says he'd just like to have the same job freedoms as his U.S. colleagues. For The World, I'm Sam Harnett in San Francisco.
0: Sophie Rabahmed is also looking for something that's hard to find, her doppelganger, a stranger that looks just like herself. Rabahmed is in her 20s, slim, about five foot nine, with blue eyes and brown hair, and she's posted her picture on the Internet in what resembles an FBI-wanted poster. But Sophie, you're not being hunted. You are doing the hunting. You're actively searching for your perfect body double for a while now. Uh, what's driving you?
14: Basically, it's a fascination with the idea that we, you know, we each and every one of us has someone out there that looks like us and, you know, whether it's just our looks are the same or similar or or do we have similar personality traits and interests and so forth. That's what motivates me. I just I like the challenge and I'm fascinated with the subject.
0: So seven billion humans on the planet. How do you track down the person in that pool who most looks like you?
14: Well, yeah, it's not easy. I've been taken to social media quite a lot. Obviously, that bridges the gap as much as I'd love to. I can't really take time off to travel the world and do that. But obviously, that would be that'd be great to do at some point. But um, social media and the internet is brilliant because, obviously, it just eradicates that distance. So I've been tweeting, Facebook, and, and because I'm British-Lebanese, I targeted also a society in London to see if I could be put in touch with other people who are – British and, and Lebanese, but apparently one of the experts I've spoken to said that it's quite a simplistic uh, idea, actually, and it might not make, my heritage might not make any difference.
0: How do you actually use social media? Do you post your picture, say, on Twitter and say, hey, anybody out there seen somebody that looks like me? <laughs>
14: Well, now I've got this wanted poster that my friend designed for me. I'm, I'm trying to get that to be something that can be shared and, you know, posting that and saying, please share this with other people. And on the Facebook page, people have been posting pictures and sending me private messages. So there's, there's definitely some potential now for some um, other good suggestions, I think.
0: Right. I, I gather somebody uh, noticed a resemblance between you and actress Helena Bonham Carter. Do you agree with that?
14: Um. I mean, I've had her and Natalie Portman quite a lot. So, I mean, I think there are similarities, but I think it really depends on the definition of what we mean by doppelganger. I mean, they've both got brown eyes, for example, mine are are blue, you know, but then I've spoken to an expert and and I've been told, you know, I'm not even my own doppelganger and, you know, I look different in different pictures. And similarly, because I'm very familiar with this face, you know, I'm going to be a very harsh judge, whereas, you know, other people that don't know this face so well don't know me very well suggesting people, and sometimes I'm like, no, that doesn't look like me at all.
0: I mean, the whole idea that we have a doppelganger somewhere on planet Earth, what is behind that? I mean, is it just such a big planet now, and we kind of start to feel lonely or something?
14: What, that we seek these people out? Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm lonely. I think I'm curious, and I think that's probably what drives it. I think people think, you know, I'm mad, or I'm narcissistic, and its it's neither of those things, really. It's just I'm very curious about this possibility. And also, like I said, the the fact it is such a slim chance, really, that I will, you know, necessarily find this person. Although, you know, what is frustrating is that during the search, you know, I often have seen people that look similar to people that I know. And I think that's often the way you see people that look like your friend or your partner or your mum or something, and you don't find the person that looks like yourself.
0: Well, we'll have a link to a picture of you. So if anybody out there sees you or somebody who looks like you, They can connect you. That's brilliant. If you ever actually have the occasion, though, to meet your doppelganger in person, what would you say to them? I mean, where do you even start?
14: I don't know. How are you? Hello? A hug? They probably run away or tell me to get off. them. I don't know. I'd I'd probably just want to find out all about them and draw parallel, really, to to my life, their life, what we like, what we don't like, you know, personality traits, you know, whether they love cheese as much as I do. You know, I just... (laughs) I would just go through the whole caboodle, really.
0: And how long have you been doing this? How long have you been at this?
14: Since November two thousand and eleven, so a long time. But I'm not going to give up. You know, people say, you know, what well, about if you don't meet her or him? People keep on saying maybe it's a him, which is true, could be a him. But I'm, yeah, I'm not going to give up. I think the fact that you know, like I said, I've seen other people that look like other people I know. I think you know it means that she's out there.
0: Well, Sophie Rabahmed, good luck with the quest, and I hope you uh, get back in touch with us when you find your doppelganger.
14: Thank you. I will.
0: Find out whether you're Sophie's doppelganger. We have her picture at theworld.org. Speaking of pairs, two new bus lines were launched by Israel this week, serving the West Bank. Now, these buses are essentially segregated for Palestinian riders only. They bring workers who live in the West Bank to job sites inside Israel. Critics say the buses are an example of the separate and unequal reality that Palestinians face under Israeli occupation, but many Palestinian workers actually welcome them. The world's Matthew Bell took a ride on one of the buses this morning.
5: It's 5.30 a.m., and the sun has just started to come up. Hundreds of Palestinian men wearing jackets and holding their lunches are lined up in a parking lot. They've just come through an Israeli military checkpoint on the edge of the West Bank. Now they're waiting to get on buses for the last leg of their morning commute to work. No room, no room, the driver says. And he closes the doors as the last few men squeeze themselves into the aisle. These are West Bank Palestinians with work permits to enter Israel proper. They tend to be a little older, breadwinners and family men the kind of Palestinians that Israel considers less of a security threat. Sitting in a window seat, a 36-year-old construction worker named Mohanad says this new bus is good. It's only a 35 each way. He says that beats getting ripped off by gypsy van operators. Mohanad says he hopes this service is here to stay. But the new bus line, that's effectively for Palestinians only, also stirs feelings of
8: resentment.
5: A man named Adil talks about riding the public bus from Tel Aviv in Israel to the large West Bank settlement of Ariel, not far from his village. Sometimes the settlers would complain to the driver about Palestinians being on the bus, he says. Adil says one time he asked an Israeli man, why are you complaining? What have I done to you? We are both tired after a long day's work and we both just want to go home. At the checkpoint, Adil says the police took the Palestinians off the bus and he could see the Israelis were happy to be rid of them. As he finishes the story, several men chime in. This is about racism, they say. It's humiliating to be put on separate buses. For their part, Israeli officials say the new buses are not about forced segregation. Palestinians with work permits, they say, can ride any bus they want to. As for the public, some Israelis might have a problem riding with Palestinians, but others don't, says 22-year-old university student Mirit. She's waiting for another bus in the West Bank settlement where she lives.
11: I haven't seen any problem with Israelis and Palestinians together on the bus. Never.
5: So you wouldn't mind riding the bus with Palestinian guys going to work from here to Tel Aviv?
11: Of
0: course not. Of course not. The, the people are living here. They take their works. They.
11: This is their country, too, so of course.
5: Israeli human rights groups and some members of parliament say the bus service for Palestinian workers adds up to a policy of discrimination and racism. But Israeli peace activist Gershon Baskin says it's not so simple. The reality is
0: that there's a poor economy next to the rich economy. The poor economy is providing workers to the rich economy. They have to move from point A to point B. There were too many workers under the current situation, and the bus company saw an opportunity to make more money and added more bus lines.
5: However, Baskin says the Palestinian-only buses do put a spotlight on the underlying problem. Israel continues to maintain a military occupation over the West Bank, and the two populations living there, Jewish settlers and Palestinian Arabs, do not have the same rights.
0: There's no such thing as separate and equal. It didn't work in America. It doesn't work here. We're, we're living in a binational reality. We have been living in a binational reality for
5: 46 years where there are two separate economies and two separate legal systems, and if that continues, that becomes even more and more problematic. Baskin says the two sides could go a long way to solving the problem by reaching a political solution. Even after that, though, Palestinian workers are likely to depend on the much larger Israeli economy and maybe some sort of bus service For some time to come. For the world, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem.
0: Mixing things up a bit today for the GeoQuiz. That musical clue is your first step north, way north to our destination. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to tell you about a band that traveled there, a place just 600 miles shy of the North Pole. They went to collect sounds from a ghost town located on a very unusual island. This island is part of what's called the Svalbard Archipelago. It's administered by the Norwegian government, but for many years it's been a kind of free trade zone. You can fly into Bjorn, the main settlement on this island. From there you'll need a snowmobile or a boat, and make sure you take along a guide with a gun. There are more polar bears than people here. Think about that for a minute or two. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. What is it about European musicians who live way up north? I once interviewed an Icelandic band that sought out an abandoned lighthouse reachable only by rowboat to record their latest album. Maybe it's the long, monotonous winters that push these people to near jackass like antics when deciding where to produce their music. But the world's Clark Boyd has discovered a Danish outfit called Efterklang, and this story just may take the cake.
13: Efter Klang's music has always been shaped by the sounds they gather from here and there. But in 2010, when the group started thinking about material for a new album, they decided they wanted to find one place and tell its story through the sounds they found there. The band started digging, going online, trying to find interesting places. But nothing really grabbed them. Until... We suddenly get this email from a Swedish film director and he suggested we should make a
2: music video in this ghost town he knew about. And he attached some photos and we were just mesmerized
13: instantly. Rasmus Stolberg is Efterklang's bassist. This ghost town, he says, isn't something out of the American Wild West. It's called Pyramida, a long-abandoned coal mining settlement on the remote island of Spitsbergen. It's really far up, and it's
2: on the same parallel as the northern part of Greenland, northern part of Canada, and so they claim everything up there is the world's northernmost. I remember reading that the world's northernmost grand piano still stands up there in the ghost town, and and that got me really excited. And so the
13: band decided, Pyramida or Bust... Stolberg notes that Spitsbergen is a daunting destination, inhospitable, strange, and potentially dangerous.
2: There are more polar bears than people. Uh, And that's,
13: uh, of course, a a very cool tagline for a place, but it's also something to take serious, of course. As is getting permission to go there at all. Spitsbergen is part of what's called the Svalbard Archipelago. It's administered by the Norwegian government, but it's kind of a free trade zone. Other countries have had economic interests there over the years. Sweden, for example, built the original coal mine there in 1910. Then it was sold on to the Russians in the late 1920s. It's called Pyramida because of the pyramid-shaped mountain next to the mining facilities. The settlement, which at one point was home to 1,000 workers and their families, was abandoned by the Russians in 1998. But as Efterklang's Mads Brower found out, you still need to get permission from the Russian mining company to visit. They are not
10: very communicative. We sent them letters in Russian. We had friends in Moscow go into their office and say, excuse me, did you actually receive that letter?
13: And nothing happened. We even faxed them. First time I used a fax in years. Eventually, though, in the summer of 2011, the band got the green light. They loaded up on Gore-Tex and canned food. They packed up their recording equipment and hopped a flight to Longyearbyen. The main town on Spitsbergen, but to reach Pyramida, says Efterklang singer Kasper Clausen, you have to go even further north.
11: We went there with a sort of a Zodiac boat, all of our equipment and these like big suits and and skiing glasses, and you know, on a three hours crazy ride in the in the ice cold water. <laughs> We've been used to that idea of, of sampling and, and, and using metal and, and, and different kind of sources of sound to make music, but, but it's interesting to be in a place like that where that's, that's your only mission, just to find sound. Real soon you kind of figure out that it's not necessarily just about the sound, it's also about what kind of spaces
13: you're in. You have to understand, the Russians had brought in everything a real community might need. They built apartments, a school, a hospital, and then abruptly left it all behind in the late 1990s. Rasmus Stolberg says it's all almost perfectly preserved.
2: They still have the boots that they would wear going to work. They're still there. The, the uniforms where people were living, there's still photos on the walls. Furniture's in there.
13: We found all the medical journals in the hospital. They're still there. Even the dead, dried leaves of the indoor plants are still clinging to the branches. So freaky, the band says. But the things they found to create sound, says Kasper Clausen, were mind-blowing. These kind
11: of concrete blocks, mm-hmm. which kind of hold together by metal uh, bars, they were just lying dumped somewhere, and if you kind of hit them with mallets, they would have like single notes,
2: so... <laughs>
13: The band spent a week and a half collecting sounds, which they've woven into their new album. Oh, and that northernmost grand piano? Well, they found it, says Mads Brauer. The most annoying thing was that we didn't bring a piano-tuning key. So, in the end, the piano doesn't end up featuring heavily on the album. But that's kind of beside the point, Brauer says.
10: Yeah, of course we get all the sounds, but we also get all the thoughts and all the impressions and all the memories and, and, and like, just being in such... An extreme situation, and it's an extreme
13: place, also uh, changes you in a way, and, 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 and that's really nice that that, that that makes it to the album as well. And not just the album. A Danish filmmaker accompanied the band to Pyramida. Rasmus Stolberg jokes that the filmmaker privately hoped the trio would begin to fray under the stress. I think he had a secret plan about making this horror documentary
2: about a band being eaten by polar bears.
13: Alas, the band didn't even see one polar bear during its time on Spitsbergen. Worry began to grow that three Danes working in the silence of Pyramida, not being chased by polar bears and generally not having one of those VH1 behind-the-music-all-was-not-well moments would make for a pretty dull documentary. And then, by sheer luck, the movie was saved, Stolberg says. Suddenly this old
2: Russian icebreaker boat arrives, and this old man steps off the boat, and um, we, we meet him, and he says, I, I'm here to visit my paradise, Pyramida, for the last time. The old man's name was Alexander. He lived there for more than 30 years, and he saw that we were filming, and he got interested, and he started selling but He also used to film a lot. He had done all these 8mm um, f- footage from the place and his, his years in the town, and, and it's just incredible footage.
13: That archive footage, and Alexander himself, became the focus of the film The Ghost of Pyramida. The soundtrack is provided, of course, by Efterklang's own album called Pyramida.
11: When nothing is up.
13: I asked the guys in the band if they're already looking for another crazy abandoned spot for their next album. They joked that after the cold and rain of Spitsbergen, the Portuguese island of Madeira was looking better and better. For the world, this is Clark Boyd.
0: Afterclang, by the way, is Danish for reverberation. Fitting, don't you think? We've got some amazing photos of the band's trip to Piramida, and the trailer for that film Clark mentioned at theworld.org. And by now, you've probably guessed, Spitsbergen is the answer to today's GeoQuiz. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.